Thank you for listening in to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. Our current sermon series is from the book of 1 Corinthians. For more information, visit our website at cumberlandcornerstone.org. This morning, what I wanted to look at was, uh, have any of you ever read the book uh, Red Sea Rules? Red Sea Rules? Okay, this is kind of taken out of that some. It, 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 I recommend the book. It's very small. You could probably read it in about an hour or so. But uh, the excerpts out of it is what, what I'm going to be uh, looking at. And actually, it deals with things that seem... Oh, yeah, children, you're dismissed. Sorry. And that's, and that's my ministry. And I still didn't get that. So, see how good that's going. But uh, what's... You know, I was sitting there too. I said, now, don't forget to dismiss the kids. And what was the first thing I did? Forget to miss, to miss the kids. So. But turn to Luke chapter 18. I want to look at uh, lessons from the Red Sea. Lessons from the Red Sea. And things that seem impossible with man are possible with God. And I want to bear this out. And, and I'm going to dovetail this hopefully eventually into the Exodus story. Uh, as you see up here, as so it should read. Uh, we're going to look at this here. The Lord will not make a way for you where, where no, where, the Lord will make a way for you where no foot has been before. That which like a sea has threatened to drown you shall be a highway for your escape. I want you to concentrate on that. I want you to write it down really. It's excellent. It was uh, Charles Spurgeon said that. And believe it or not, the Jews are going to trod in the great exodus through a place where no one has trod before. And even in all their fear and misunderstanding, God is going to make a way of escape. But I love this uh, um, story here in Luke chapter 18 about the rich man. And, it, and I'm just going to dovetail this in, but it goes like this. Now a certain ruler asked him or came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? All right, good question. And Jesus said, first thing he said, why do you call me good teacher? No one is good but one. That is God. In other words, what he's saying to him is, uh, he said, what are we, or listen, he's calling him uh, righteous teacher. Righteous teacher. Well, there's only one righteous. And by saying that, he's acknowledging what? That he's God. He said, are you saying I'm God? Because you're saying I'm good. And there's only one that's righteous. And that would be God himself. And then he goes on to say, uh, what do you have to do? He said, well, you got to keep the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, I've done all these things. But see, Jesus was looking inside the heart and Jesus is going to touch him in a soft spot here in verse uh, 22. And, and when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack something. I want you to, you're covetous. You've broken the law in covetousness. Thou shalt not covet. And the Bible says, listen, if you break the law in one area, you're guilty of all and you need a savior right are we right and the thing about that is is the world tries to disclaim sin and and put everything as that does not exist you think about this logically if you can do away and make everything a, a, a somebody else's fault or some type of an addiction or some type of this or some type of that you have no responsibility when there's no responsibility back on my own life and there's no sin I don't need a redeemer anymore do I, I don't need a savior and we can do away with that part and the world is trying to cleanse itself of the Lord Jesus himself. You can see that working its way out. But he said, you still lack something. He said, sell all that you have and, and uh, distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. Well, first of all, we know that a man's not saved by selling everything he has. 
You can go and live in a cardboard hut if you were a zillionaire and you're not going to heaven because of that. And Jesus knew that. Jesus was trying to bring this man around to say, listen, you're a sinner and you're in need of a savior. You're saying I'm God and if I'm righteous, you've got to live up to my standard and you can't. And you have to come under salvation and its plan. And then he said when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was rich. I want you to note that. He was rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said to him, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, is it impossible? Remember when you were a kid, how many of you even remember sewing needles? I mean, so I guess if you're 35 and below, you don't. They were little sharp things. You stuck thread in and you could stitch things up. And darn was a word, uh, instead of Christian cussing, darn was a word. Uh, just kidding there. Uh, darn was a word that you did with your socks. Right? Did you darn your socks? I think that's what they did. But anyway, can't find many of those socks. But uh, don't, uh, th- that, th- now I've lost my place. <laughs> but you know, it, it was so hard to, to, even when you had good eyes as a little kid, to get that needle, that thread in that needle, right? And so you know it's impossible. You couldn't jam a camel into the eye of a needle. And they knew that was an impossibility. So then they begin to talk amongst yourself. Really, can you imagine? I don't want to put this stuff. Sometimes we take these stories and it's like black and white, cut and dry. They're in a group. Like we're in a group. Uh, they're, in a, they're out and about and they're talking to one another. And, and Jesus is up there walking. They're whispering back here and they're talking. They're carrying on general conversations about their family and all that. It's personal. It's real. And they're, and they're there talking and say, well, if that be the case then... They said, who can be saved? It's impossible because you've just said it's impossible. And he goes on, he says, but he said to them, the things which are impossible with man are possible with God. And then the Bible stops. It just stops there and lets them hang there. I'm sure as time went on, this impossibility, they were thinking to themselves, wow, we, what did that all mean? And you know what's fascinating? Jesus is going to teach a, a tremendous lesson and a tremendous story. And I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss it. Because you know what? When I say the word, I'm, I'm going to give you a word. And I know exactly what you're going to think when I say it. Because it's been turned in such, to such a child's song that we miss its importance. It's adult uh, connotations and how it can be used in our life. Zacchaeus. Well, let's do it, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. As Tommy Thompson would say over there, right, Tommy? He was picked before he was ripe. Right? So he's real little, okay? And what does he do? He climbed up a certain tree. What was it? A sycamore tree. And then Jesus says to uh, Zacchaeus, you come because I'm going to your Isn't that what we know of Zacchaeus? And you know what? I want you to look in chapter 19 and I want you to look at verse 9. When God makes the impossible possible. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because he is the son of Abraham. The rich young ruler, I'm sad to say, you will not see in heaven when you die. Zacchaeus, you will. But the important thing that Jesus is drawing home and bringing back to them is this. And it's found in verse 2. 
Now before there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was rich. You know, God, as these songs have said, created this world and did all these things. And then he comes to to the disciples and he says, listen, what is impossible with you is possible with God. And it's impossible for a rich man to get to heaven for you and I to understand. It's just as impossible as to drive a camel through the eye of a needle. And then shortly thereafter, one chapter, he brings his disciples. This little man climbs up in this tree. And when you hear this story from now on, I want you to think of it not as a little man in a tree with a kid's song. I want you to think of a rich man that God did a miracle to and that he saved and brought into the family of God. And as they sat there and saw this, he had just told them and they had just seen the impossible become what? Possible. It wasn't put in there just for a child's song. As nice as that is, it was put in there to show that God can do impossible things in people's lives. Left to yourself, if you're born again, saved, blood washed, redeemed, and the Holy Spirit lives in you, it was impossible for you to understand the things of God without him revealing them to you in some form. That brings me up to, uh, let's go back to rather, Psalms, the book of Psalms. And I'm going to dovetail this in to Psalms 77, if you would turn there. And I want to just... I want to give you a story about the Exodus first because I want to do a little thing on the Exodus and then I'm going to come back to this 77 and then we're going to talk about the Exodus, okay? But we all know that great story, we've all studied it and I want to look at it a little bit different that Israel is down in Egypt because his brothers sold Joseph into slavery, right? And Joseph ends up going into Egypt. He's sold down there. He saves the nation of Egypt. It's a world power. He saves Egypt from famine and starvation. And that Pharaoh loved Joseph and raised them up as a great people. But then other Pharaoh comes on the scene, doesn't remember uh, uh, what Joseph did, and begins to mistreat the Jews. We know that story. It's pretty common in the Bible. And as uh, he's mistreating them, God raises up a man by the name of Moses. And Moses is going to be raised where? In the household of Pharaoh, high in command. He's going to go through uh, uh, EU. I've said this before. He goes through Egypt University for 40 years. He studies under the Pharaohs. And he decides that the pleasures of the world are less valuable to him or mean nothing to him as in to serve his God. So in 40 years, he strikes out on his own with some mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. But he strikes out on his own and he defends the people of God. He goes into the wilderness for another 40 years. And God's deprogramming him from the teachings of the world. Do you know that we need at times to be deprogrammed from the world's philosophy and its system and its ideas? How much of that do we bring into our family, into our homes, and into our church? Let me warn you, and you already know it, but I just want to rattle your chain. The world is not your friend, and they're not looking out spiritually for the best for your children. And their ways, God said, is the ways of destruction. 
So 40 years in Egypt he goes, and he's in Egypt University, and he's being trained. And for 40 years he sits on the backside of a desert as God is untraining him from that and training him in his ways. And then one day God appears to him and says, Moses, I got a job for you. You're going to have to go down to Egypt, and we're going to get our people. I made a promise. I'm sovereign. I've made a promise. I can't lie. And you're going to be the one to bring them out. I'd have been scared to death. I'd have had a stuttering pro- problem. Would you? you? You mean me? I mean, seriously. I mean, come on. You're going against a guy that can kill you at any moment when you stand in his presence. You're going against the most powerful entity in that time in the world. And you're going to demand something from someone that you don't make demands. He makes demands. And inside that... As the plagues begin to come and God begins to warn Pharaoh, he says, listen, I'm going to send plague after plague after plague on you. And I'm going to tell you something. Get this. Their religious system was totally disassembled. Do you know that every plague that came on Egypt wasn't just say, hey, God, I'm going to send a fly down there and let them bite at you. Of course, it's horrible enough, right? You've been bit up by flies, you know. They had a goddess with a fly head. Okay. When God struck the livestock, they had a God with a cow's head. All ten of those plagues, I want you to get this, that God was embarrassing the pharaohs, that their religious system was not only false, untrue, but he was the true and only living God. Now here, get this. Every plague destroyed a God. And they knew it. And he was embarrassing Pharaoh in front of his whole nation. And every one of those, like turning the blood, uh, uh, water into blood. They had a God of the Nile that supplied them with water. God made the Nile unusable. They had a God that protected the earth and God brought lice up out of the earth. And even the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh was above all gods. Who was, you know what they actually believed? That Pharaoh was birthed out of the sun god, Ra. And that he was actually came out of the sun god. And he was above all gods. All gods. Almost a giver of life. And he took that mantle. He took that torch and wore it with, I guess, a breast of honor. And God said, if that's the way it is, I'm going to kill your firstborn and show you that you're not a God either. You're just a man. And as God systematically destroyed the Egyptians' religious system, I want to tell you what else he did. He destroyed it as a world power. He destroyed its food source so they couldn't feed themselves. He destroyed their military as he drowned them in the sea. He destroyed their economy, totally wiped it out with locusts and fire and hail and all those things. And then he finally destroyed them as a world power. And if you study history, after this exodus in history, Egypt goes off the scene historically. They were ravished and devastated for mistreating the people of God. And then God, and as they travel through the wilderness, they end up in this little cul-de-sac. And they're out of Egypt, and they're rejoicing, and they're sitting there. And I want you to keep this in your mind. They're sitting in this little cul-de-sac, and the, the, the sea is before them, and the desert is behind them, and all is well. 
Look in Psalms chapter 77. God gives us a thought on just remembering his faithfulness to his people before we get into this. Asaph had some trouble in his life. And I, I want you to show you this in Psalm 77 verse 1. It said, I cried out to God with my voice. He's distressed. He said, I cried out to God with my voice. In verse 2, he says, and in the day of my trouble, I saw him. He's having a very bad time in his life, the Bible tells. Verse 4, he says, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. You ever been so distraught or something happened so bad or things going on that you say, hey, listen, I really can't even talk about that right now. I just need some time in my mind to clear my thoughts because I can't put this all together. I can't. Uh, get a hold of this right now. That's what he's saying. He said, I'm so troubled. And this thing has came on me so much. I can't even speak about it right now because I am distraught. I'm a mess. Life has dealt me a blow. Look in verse 10. It says, and I said, this is my anguish. I am in anguish. And then he begins to question God like we all would if things come bad enough. That's just the way we're made. Verse 7, will the Lord cast off forever and will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promises failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies towards me? In other words, has God removed his blessings from my life and he is now cursing me because I'm in so much anguish. I'm in so much turmoil in my life. The situation is overwhelming me and you're not answering me. You have nothing to say to me, God. And Asaph says this in 77.3. He said, but I remembered. And in verse 6, he said, I call to remembrance my song. And in verse 10, he says, but I will remember. And in verse 11, I, 11, I will remember and in ver that same verse, surely I will remember. What will I remember, Asaph? What are you going to remember? Who God is, verse 16. The water saw you, O God. The water saw you. They were afraid. The depth also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the world. When the lightning lit up the words, the earth, trem world, the earth trembled and shook. Verse 10. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters and your footsteps were not known. I am going to meditate and concentrate and realize that you were faithful to my people. You see that saying right there? That's where it goes. And their way, and I'm going to get back to this, but I want you to get it. Their way of death became their way of life. And what they seen as death was going to be their escape later on in this study. There has no temptation taken you but such as common to man, but God is faithful. Now get this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. But God is faithful. Who will with the temptation or with the trial, with it, 
make a way to escape that you can bear it. You'll be able to bear up under this trial. But that verse tells me sometimes that trial can be the way that you'll escape. I put it down like this. One person's tragedy is sometimes another person's defining moment. You see that in sports. When somebody jukes or does something to somebody and and their defining moment is defeat, but that other person's defining moment is victory. Also, if you put it like this, one man's appointment with death is another man's highway to escape. I gave you a thought on this. I read a story one time that a lady was uh, uh, not dying, but she had cancer. She could have died of cancer and they were treating cancer. And as some husbands do and some uh, people do and wives, uh, he decided that since his wife was going to lose her hair, he was going to shave his. So he shaved his hair, and when he shaved his head, they found a cancerous spot on the top of his head covered by his hair. They said if he would have never have cut his hair, they probably would have never found it, and he probably would have lost his life. So in one person's tragedy, and what they were going through was another person's escape. And sooner or later, no matter what, you're going to find yourself as Asaph. And you're going to find yourself in a situation. And we're going to have to find ourselves to remember. You know, there's another thing he says in those verses. I I just want to, before I move on, in verse 6. He says, not only do I remember. He said, I meditate. I meditate within my heart. I don't sit down on a carpet and hum. Okay? That's not God's way. God's way is you meditate on his faithfulness. You meditate on his promises. You meditate on his future promises to you. You meditate on what he has already accomplished in your life. You meditate in thanksgiving on your salvation and what he's given you. You meditate on that. In verse 12, I will also meditate on your works. And that's what he did. And that's exactly what he did. Turn over now to Exodus chapter 14 and we'll... We'll go there. We're going to move right along here and dovetail this in. So we see what is impossible with man. The rich young ruler, I want you to grasp the concept that just shortly thereafter God saved a rich man. That all things are possible with God. I want you to get a second point on this thing is that when things are bad and things aren't going right and, and they're coming at us all the time. That we need to meditate on the promises of God and the faithfulness of God to us. No matter where we're at. Look at chapter 14. And this will be the thrust of our lesson. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. That they turn and camp before Pi-Hiroth between Magdal and and the sea. Opposite Baal Zephon, you shall camp before it by the sea. In other words, in this little cotty sack, that's where I want you to go. I want you to park there. And then uh, for, 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 for Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. In other words, uh, Pharaoh's going to let you go. And then he's going to sit back there in his palace and said, you know what? They're out there running around in the wilderness. Now listen, I want you to get this. There's at least two million people out there. You know how hard it would be to move two million people across the desert? How long that would take? The infrastructure, the highways, the blacktop, the fossil fuels it would require to get the motors going. You know what I'm talking about? 
No, they're just walking over there. They're, they're moving over there in directional walking. They're going there. And they stop there. And Pharaoh's back there. Okay, this is the way we're going to be. He's so hard-hearted. Uh, someone likened it like this. Do you ever have a washcloth and it's all wet in your hands? All right, and it's sitting there. And then you just take it and you wring it. You know, sometimes God brings ringing into our life to wring out what's in there. And that's what he did to Pharaoh. He just kept wringing him out as a cloth. And this is the, the stuff that just come out of him. I always say this. You never really know a person until they're in a hard time. And that brings out their attitudes, their personalities, their understandings, their approachabilities. Not on the good times. Not in this time. Everything's good. So Pharaoh's there, listen, they're all down there in a big huddle. All two million of them. We're going to go down and we're going to kill every one of them. I want you, I load up the chariots. And that's exactly what he does. He says, then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I'm going to gain honor over Pharaoh and his armies in Egypt. And they're going to know that I am the Lord. Verse 5. Now it was told the king of Egypt. That the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants were turned against the people. And it says this, why have we done this? We have let Israel go from serving us. In other words, our slaves are gone. We're going to have to start doing this work ourselves. We're going to have to start laying bricks and building houses. We don't have anybody to do this. And all this is destroyed and there's no food. And this and all the things that have already come upon them. So... Pharaoh in his anger says, ready up the chariots. Take 600 of those chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with all its captains and go and get them. In verse 8, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh of Egypt and he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out uh, with boldness. You know, in fact, it's amazing in that story that when Israel was leaving, that God said that even the dogs would not bark at them or growl, but they would the Egyptians. You ever think about that? You ever go through uh, streets at night or whatever and there's a wild dog inside a fence and just hope it won't jump it? You know, but the point is that sounds like a little thing. But God said, I'm even going to silence the dogs from barking when the Israelis to separate, to show that there's a difference between them and the Egyptians. So it says, so the Egyptians pursued them with all their horses and Pharaoh's all his horsemen and his army and overtook them by the camp where in the Cadisac before the Red Sea. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now I want you to stop just for a minute and get a visual of this. I don't want this to be like just a lesson, okay? I want you to stop and think of this two million people. What, what, what do you think the, 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 the circumference or, the, or, or the, the, the mileage around there? How many miles? If Moses is up here in the front, camped out at the Red Sea, how far back were those uh, Israelis? Well, I'm sure they were back in there, right? I want you to think about it. You're back there on the back end. And all of a sudden, the sand starts uh, to vibrate. You're rejoicing. We're out from the Egyptians. God's moving us. Where are we going from here? We have a great victory in our life right now, don't we? And then all of a sudden, the sand starts to vibrate. And you look at your wife, your children say, what? What is that sound? What is that sound? And a scout goes up over the hill. It's the whole Egyptian army's coming down on you to kill you. Can you imagine how fast that flew up through that camp to Moses? The Egyptians are on their way. They're going to kill us. Can you imagine 
look, can you imagine verse 11 as they start yelling at Moses? Hey Moses, didn't we tell you to leave us alone? Did you bring us out here to die? Is that what you did, Moses? Because that's exactly what they said. Wasn't there enough room and property and real estate in Egypt to bury us? So we'll all be buried right here in the sand and in the sea? Is that what you did, Moses? Is this who you are? And that's exactly what it says. Then they said to Moses, because there was not enough graves in Egypt, have you taken us here to die out here? Why'd you do this to us, Moses? And first of all, it was a great victory, and God had given a great victory. Now it's Moses, you did this. Why have you dealt with us like this? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And now they're coming down on them. They're in this cul-de-sac. The seas before them, they're coming to kill them. Death on both sides. Death on both sides. Well, my challenge in closing, because my time is about up. Verse 1 and 2, I want you to see something. Now the Lord spoke to Abraham, uh, uh, Moses and said this. Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before the Red Sea. Let me ask you this here. Who put them in front of the Red Sea? Who led them there? Was it Moses? Or was Moses doing what he was told to do? God put him there. God put them all there. And I'll tell you something. No matter what you're facing in your life today, as hard as it is, God has put you there. If you are walking in his will and you are loving him and you are doing what he wants, number one, he has put you right where you are. No matter what you face when you close the door in your home, and he will see you through it. And when you are doing the things of God, and God has your attention, and he has put you in that place, and we long for those times of peace, don't we? Don't we? We long for those, but sometimes life isn't always very peaceful. The second thing there I want you to see, though, is that while all that jubilee was going on and all that victory was going on and they were camped in front of the Red Sea and they were having this great party, there was forces behind them wanting to destroy them. And I want you to grasp that concept. Folks, listen. There are forces in the background that want to destroy you and I. That want to destroy our Christianity, that want to destroy our life, that want to destroy our testimony, and want to destroy us as a people, and they want to destroy us as a church. And just as Pharaoh was in the background, ready to work to destroy the people of God, the Bible says the world, the flesh, and the devil are out to destroy us. The world and its system wants to destroy your belief system. Your own flesh is working against you and pulling at you, and the devil is behind it, shoving it all along the way. And here they sit in this great victory and behind the scenes someone is plotting to destroy them. You know when I put it down like this when you think of people in the word of God and what they were up against what is impossible with man is possible with God. God wasn't it Hagar a single mom that was going to be sent out into the desert basically to die? And wasn't it Joseph who was a dreamer but was doing the will of God and goes to his brothers and was sold to go down and be lost from his family? But God had another plan. 
And wasn't it Moses that decided to go with a thankless people and reject all of Las Vegas and all that Las Vegas brings and all the hype and all the fun and all the excitement of life to go live in the desert with the people of God? And wasn't it David who got anointed king by the hand of God himself that was being tracked down by the Israeli military itself to be killed by doing the will of God as forces behind the scene were trying to destroy these very people. And not only that, wasn't it the disciples that were told by God himself to get into a boat and cross the sea into a great storm? Wasn't it God that told them to do that? And wasn't it God himself who went to the cross and listened and obeyed the Father? And it wasn't it the disciples who were commissioned to go and preach the gospel and because of it, they were whipped, they were beaten, they were tortured, and they were martyred. And history tells us through the centuries that those same people and offspring of the disciples that came to know Christ, their children and them were put in arenas and clothed in animal skins and so forth and so on. And all the things for obedience. You know, and we have a tendency to do, and I do, I'm talking to myself. If you look at verse 11, they ask question after question after question mark. And I want you to get this. Where God has put periods, try not to put a question mark. God brought me here. He's going to deliver me from this. And he's in this. And you see that in verse 14. It says the Lord will fight for you. And you shall hold your peace. And in verse 13 it tells us. It says for the Egyptians whom you see today. You will never see again. Where God puts periods. Our human nature puts question marks. But what? But why? But this? But that? And that's the way we're made. And God said, when every avenue is exhausted, in verse 13, look at a phrase. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, but what? Stand still. Stand still. Yes, you have an army coming down on you. Yes, you got an ocean in front of you or uh, the Jordan. Yes, that's all there. But I want you to stand still. Listen, sometimes when bad things happen in our life, we have a hard time standing still. And I'm not saying we shouldn't exhaust every avenue we can to do whatever it takes. But I'll tell you something. There's a time to stand still and to meditate, as Asaph said. To meditate on the promises and the faithfulness of God. Let me say it as this. I am here by appointment. I'm in his keeping. Keeping. I'm under his training. And it's all for his time. I read a story in that little book about a lady. A lady that had cancer. She was, it was a long time ago. So she was very ill. She was in France. They took her to an American hospital. She was dying. Now she didn't realize she was dying at that time. But they knew, the doctors knew. So they came in and they were, they were working on her. And they diagnosed the problem. And she's laying there and she, she looks at them and she says, um, so what's the answer? I want you to think about this now. She says, what's the answer? 
And they laughed, uh, kind of looked at each other. Nobody said a word. No doctor, no. And, and she, they said she kind of giggled. She said, then what's the question? Then what's the question? In other words, if I'm here, why I'm here, and I'm here for this reason, then what's the question? Well, here it is. God, in this situation, how can I bring glory to you? God, how can you use this situation in my life to encourage somebody else's life? That's the question. The question is not why me, but why not me? That's the question. And God revealed things about me that I've never seen before. That's the question. Well, in closing, the way of death, I want you to get this picture. The the Israelis, they're there in that cul-de-sac. The angel of the Lord takes the cloud. It was a pillar of cloud, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He swings that, he swings around to the backside. Can you imagine this? He swings around to the backside of that group of people and, and God himself is protecting them. He makes it black as dark can be so the Pharaoh's army cannot see. And then before them is... The Red Sea. I know I said Jordan one time, sorry. And now the way of death is going to become the way of life. Because God's going to tell Moses, I want you to step in. I want you to raise your step. I want you to head in. And God parts that. He parts the Red Sea and they begin to, to walk through it, blocking the Pharaoh and his army. And God tells us as they cross through it and as God allows them to go through it, he actually began to knock the wheels off the chariots. So they're down in there, digging in, trying to get over there to them. And then you know the rest of the story. The water collapses and the, the Egyptian army perishes. The way of death became the way of life. Do you realize by Jesus walking the way of death became the way of life for us? Do you realize that Jesus faced a cross and when he seen that cross, it meant death? But through death came life. And that through him doing what he did, we can have eternal life. So the way of death becomes the way of life. Romans tells us, Romans tells us that, that through Jesus' gift of death, we live. So when you look at this story this morning, my thought to you is things that are impossible with man are possible with God. When you look at the life of Asaph, he meditated on the the, the faithfulness of God in the past and also what he'll do in the future. And when you look at the Exodus, I want you to think that God has put us there. Yes, it appears that there's no way out, but that through that temptation, God will make a way to escape. For the Jews, it was right through the gut of the Red Sea. For the Egyptians, that very way of life became their death. And you know, for the lost that reject Christ, the very way of life that was given to them in Jesus will lead them to their death.
of separation from God. The way of death is the way of life for us, just like it was the Jews. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And as we think of those people and how the, the, they crossed that Red Sea, that you made an opening for life. And we think about the Lord Jesus, that his death was the opening for our life. I pray if somebody here doesn't know Christ as their Savior, they come to know him this morning. Just thank you for the opportunity to worship together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information on our church, located in Cumberland, Maryland, please go to cumberlandcornerstone.org.